we can now select for uh, we have kind of like an a la carte. You know, I want to I want a Holstein cow that does this and this and this and this. And we can just select for that. Right. And so we're in the early stages of that. Uh, we've also had a reproduction revolution with the high fertility cycle with fertility programs. And we're just seeing these sky high. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Excellent by Protecta a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. And AB Vista. This morning, it's a pleasure to have uh, Paul Fricke with us from the University of Wisconsin. And uh, Paul, we were chatting a little bit before. Sounds like you had a, a great uh, weekend in the woods. I did. I did. Went up to the Northwoods uh some buddies of mine and our sons, we went grouse hunting and actually actually got a few. So Excellent. And now uh, a great start to the, the week, um, a Monday morning podcast. So uh, <clears throat> obviously uh, you are, are very well recognized in, in the field of, of reproduction, reproductive physiology. I think what's really uh, unique about your background is, is uh, both at the producer level, so very practical application of, of technologies, of synchronization programs, and, and recommendations, and also uh, from the scientific community in terms of research and, and publications. Um, can you get, maybe give the audience a little bit of the background of uh, the, your uh, specific uh, program and then uh, the overall program at the university, which is obviously uh, well-recognized also? Sure, uh, Mark. And again, thank you for inviting me to do this podcast. Um, I'll go back to the very beginning. I grew up on a dairy farm in eastern Nebraska where my dad and my uncle farmed with my grandfather. We milked about 60 Holstein cows. So that's, I, I think that's one of the big credentials I use when I go out and talk to dairy farmers. They probably like to hear that more than all of the uh, educational background stuff. But uh, anyhow, yeah, so I grew up on a dairy farm, uh, milking cows, went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln for my bachelor's degree, on to university, uh, or North Dakota State University for my master's and PhD. I spent a couple years at the Meat Animal Research Center in Clay Center, Nebraska, uh, did two of the three studies in my uh, dissertation there, and then uh, ended up uh, coming to Wisconsin in 1995. And I did a postdoc and uh, came to Wisconsin to work with Dr. Milo Wiltbank. And so uh, if, you, if you look back, 1995, that's the first publication of the OFSINC protocol, which was a, a big shift in, uh, I think, scientific thinking and had a practical management tool. In 98, I took my faculty position. Then I was able to compete for the faculty position at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, we're, uh, we were a dairy science department. In 2000, we merged with animal sciences. We've got a really strong dairy group, um, good, good group of us working in, in specific disciplines with, within dairy. 
And so my my academic appointment is between research and extension, specifically with dairy cattle reproduction. And, and Paul, I'm glad you pointed out, because uh, there's something I did want to mention for, for those in the audience who, who aren't aware of the, the original Lausing protocol, you know, came out of the, the research of uh, the Wisconsin group, uh, Dr. Uh, Milo Wilpank and, and, and Paul's other colleagues. Um, so that's, you know, quite uh, a recognition for the university and the, and the team there at the university. So um, given that, uh, you know, fast forward to today and, and, and many changes in terms of uh, not only synchronization programs and lots of uh, variations or tweaks on those, uh, the uh, technology that we have available now with uh, activity monitoring and so forth, uh, what are some of your areas of, of interest and focus currently? Yeah, so um, so I like to tell the story during the pandemic. Uh, pandemic hit. I remember sitting in my office and I said, you know, they're gonna they're gonna close down my office here at work. So I I put up the home office. Had a master student at the time. She's now my PhD student. And I told her, I said, well, we've got some time. We're gonna write a USDA grant, and we got that funded. And so a big focus of uh, my PhD students' research is on optimizing use of sex semen in uh, in dairy dairy cattle, so in heifers as well as lactating dairy cows. So that's my PhD student. I also have a master's student right now. We're very interested in embryo transfer. Um, right now, she's working on a project where we're transferring IVF uh, Angus embryos into, into lactating Jersey cows on a commercial dairy here in Wisconsin. And so we can talk about both of those, both of those areas. I think they're kind of exciting areas that are up and coming and that people are starting to ask a lot of questions about. Well, that sounds like an excellent um, area to start some conversation. As you know, uh, our partners within Dairy Health are, are Feedlot Health. So, uh, you know, our extended group, we're working both in, in calf ranches, feedlot and, and dairy. And it's something that uh, we're actively involved in a lot of discussion. So it would be great to get uh, more of your insight uh, on that. I guess one question that uh, maybe to start is um, in terms of embryo transfer technology, obviously, you know, many years ago, at least before my time, you know, AI became uh, a new technology and now is, is obviously uh, across the board commonplace and, and uh, rare to find bulls on herds. What do you think are some of the limitations why embryo transfer hasn't become as mainstream or adopted in, in commercial herds as uh, AI? Yeah, I think the big limitations with embryo transfer right now are number one, cost. Um, you can make a lot of genetic progress with uh, artificial insemination, and semen is relatively cheap, and we're relatively successful uh, with with semen-based programs. Albert DeVries down at the University of Florida has done some nice work just looking. If you're going to genetically improve your herd driving the female side from, from the embryo transfer, you have to get those embryos – uh, cheaper than they they currently are. Um, the other limitation would be pregnancies per ET is relatively low, especially in light of what we can do with semen-based programs coming off of fertility programs like double offsync. We can, it's amazing, Mark. We can get half our cows pregnant at first breeding if you put them on a double offsync for first breeding. You're going to get half of that probably with pregnancies per ET, so you're gonna take a big hit at first service there. And then the other big limitation with embryo transfer, these embryos aren't normal, so they they do have higher rates of pregnancy loss. And and one of the big things that 
my student Natalia is working on is we're trying to figure out if there's a way that we can reduce pregnancy loss or increase pregnancies for ET when we do uh, when we do embryo transfer and lactating dairy cows or heifers. So it sounds like some exciting opportunities for the future with uh, development um, within research and new technologies. Yeah, and I'll just comment. You know, I, I mentioned what we're what we're doing in this Jersey herd. So, and we'll come back to this. Um, the use of sexton beef semen has dramatically increased. And this is an interesting story because you talked about the original OffSync program back in 1995. When Wiltbank and Pursley developed that protocol, what it did to improve reproduction. So if you go back and you think about the 21-day pregnancy rate, 21-day pregnancy rate is driven by two other rates, the service rate or the insemination rate, the rate at which you can put semen into cows. And then pregnancies per AI, which is how many cows that you actually breed get pregnant. Obsync only improved the, the service rate. So it was just simply a way to get semen into cows. So by breeding more cows more aggressively, more times, that had a tremendous impact on 21-day uh, pregnancy rates. And uh, one of the things that I'll say about uh, Dr. Wiltbank, my colleague, my former mentor, um, he didn't. He didn't stop with Obsync. Obsync itself was a revolutionary idea, and just understanding the basic biology and how to manipulate it. Uh, he looked at the original results with Obsync and said, "Yeah, okay, it's a service rate program. How do we turn this into a a way that we can actually incre increase fertility in these lactating dairy cows?" And so, over about a twenty-year period of time, and this is some of the research that I've been involved with as well, we've learned that. We can pre-synchronize cows, for example. We can deal with anovulatory cows better. And so that's really, those are the two kind of driving ideas behind, say, a more complex program like a double opsync program, which is basically two opsync protocols back to back. And then the big, the big shift came with understanding that the rate limiting step was lack of complete luteal regression, which is where we got the second treatment of prostaglandin in the second opsync. When all that fell into place, we, and I don't know if you saw this, Mark, we just saw fertility pop in these herds. And so, um, so we've been able to turn these, these programs into fertility programs. They not only increase the service rate, they can, they can improve the pregnancies per AI as well. And so what happened in the industry is that all of a sudden, when we went from 14% 21-day pregnancy rates, we've got herds, Mark. I gave a talk um, about 10 years ago that I called 30-30. I recall that. How to get a 30 yeah, 30% pregnancy rate in a 30,000 pound herd. And my idea at the time, I was, you know, at the time, the, the goal for 21 day pregnancy rate, the pie in the sky goal was 20%. And so I kind of wanted to reset the goals and say, look, we can, we can get much better than 20%. However, uh, within a very short span of time, relative time, you know, five to 10 years, these farms just shot by 20%. 30, 40 is the new 30, Mark. I mean, I was at World Dairy Expo uh, last, whenever it was, two weeks ago, and it had three different farmers that I know in Wisconsin come talk to me, said they're they're hitting 40% 21 That's day it's just, it's, it's It's just absolutely phenomenal. So it's not just the fertility program. Another big talk that I've been given, Mark, is this whole concept of the high fertility cycle. And that's simply the notion that if you get your cows pregnant in a timely fashion, uh, they don't get 
they don't have long dates in milk. They don't get fat late in lactation. If you calve fat cows, they lose body condition score early in lactation, and they have terrible fertility, even on a fertility program. So the combination of those things really is what is driving these high preg rates. And so what, what, is ha what happened very quickly is we started to overproduce replacement heifers. And that was a tremendous mind shift, I think, that had to take place with a lot of farmers before nobody would have sold heifers. You know, you talk to people and they just say, you know, we got to keep all of our heifers because you got it. You can't money ever, in the bank. Money in the bank. You can't ever, you can't ever have too many heifers. Well, guess what? We overproduced heifers. Heifers are now worth less than it costs to raise them. And so basically, if you look at the last about five to seven year period, we've seen a dramatic increase in use of sex semen in lactating cows, which we never saw before. Because now we've get, got really high fertility and we can tolerate this slight reduction in fertility of using sex semen and lactating dairy cows. And then so another technology that came along was genomic testing. So if you know your genetically best cows, you can calculate uh, how many replacements you need. You're going to use sex semen to generate those replacements. And then you have all these cows that you want to get pregnant because you want them to return to lactation, but you don't need the replacements out of. So people were using sex semen now pretty aggressively in lactating dairy cows. And I think that's what you're talking about, Mark, in Torreon. I mean, now we're seeing calf ranches. I mean, 10 years ago, Mark, you wouldn't have probably seen, and I'm imagining those are a lot of crossbred dairy beef animals that you're seeing in these calf ranches. In the in the U.S., yes. And, and though that's evolving, yeah. um, still, still many Holsteins, okay. but that's certainly evolving, yes. Yeah, I was just out. I mentioned the embryos. Uh, Simplot is the company out in Idaho that's producing these Angus embryos. We we were just out there, my PhD student and I had a meeting and got to tour um, uh, one of the biggest feedlots in the U.S. About I think there's 130,000 head there. About half of them are dairy beef crosses. We also went to a 50,000 head calf ranch. I think all those calves are crossbred calves. They're either Jersey or Holstein crosses, a lot of Wagyu uh, crosses in there as well. And, you know, those, the, the I think the most impactful thing that I saw when I was there is that 10 years ago, none of that would have existed because, you know, we really didn't have the fertility in these lactating dairy cows. So it's been really fun and rewarding to see how quickly this has shifted and how the industry has started to really adjust and and start to uh, better better deal with this. And so our... Our objective with with sex semen is that, and, and this is another thing we need to talk about, Mark. I, I if you look at randomized controlled trials, and I know farmers' eyeballs roll back in their head when I say randomized controlled trials, but if you flip a coin and say this cow's going to get bred to sex semen, and this cow's going to be bred to beef semen, so if you randomize to the, or not beef semen, sex semen. So conventional semen versus sex semen, you get about 80 to 85% of the fertility of conventional semen with sex semen. There is always a reduction in fertility with sex semen. Now, I get into arguments on farms because if you just go to your dairy comp file and look at semen type, break it down by semen type, a lot of times sex semen is as fertile as the conventional semen, but nobody is taking into account which cows they're breeding with sex semen. They're breeding their youngest, most fertile animals and the earliest services with sex semen, and then they switch over to another, another semen type. So they don't see it in on-farm records, but there is a reduction in 
uh, fertility with sex semen. So we're just looking at ways to to try to deal with that. And um, one of the first studies my student did when she was a master's student, we worked with three different uh, heifer growers here in Wisconsin farms that have, have heifers on site and um, randomized those heifers to a treatment where we just gave prostaglandin when they were moved into the, the breeding pens and then watch for heat. We, th we think that's probably the way a lot of heifers are managed. And I think a mistake that farms are making is they're trying to use sex semen in the same way they'll use conventional semen. And if you use, if you do that, if you, if you give prostaglandin when you move them into the breeding pen, you'll catch a lot of those heifers in heat. You can do one daily tail chalk and you can uh, breed a lot of heifers to normal fertility with conventional semen. Doesn't work as well with sex semen because the margins are tighter. And uh, you have to be better at your timing of insemination relative to ovulation with sex semen. So the other treatment we looked at was setting those heifers up on a five-day uh, cedar sink protocol, just a standard five-day cedar sink that you would see recommended by the Dairy Cattle Reproduction Council. And if you just look at fertility, we gained seven percentage points on uh, pregnancies per AI with the timed insemination using sex semen in these heifers. So you get better fertility. So that's, it was small amount, 7% isn't completely small, but it's, it's not a huge difference. The big difference is, is though the days on feed. And that's really the cost of raising heifers is days on feed. And days on feed is determined by when the heifers get pregnant. So by forcing the issue and synchronizing that group of heifers and getting semen into them, not only did we get 7% percentage points higher pregnancies per AI, we saved a bunch of days on feed. And if you do the costs, you know, when I talk to heifer growers, they, nobody wants to spend money on heifers up front. And those, those synchronization protocols are not exactly cheap because they involve a cedar and, and three treatments. And so, um, but we do the economic analysis, you're about $17 a head per pregnancy by being more aggressive with your heifers with sex semen. So that's an example of how we're trying to look at systematic ways to improving how we use sex semen in an operation to make uh, to make that better. So that was the, that was the heifer trial. Okay. And Paul, that's $17. That's the net benefit um, after okay, per pregnancy. Per pregnancy. Okay. Then is that, that, is that both reduced days on feed and then earlier uh, days, productive days to, to first lactate? It's, it's days on feed, saving days on feed, and the increase in conception rate is basically is basically what that is. And so it pays for uh, the cost of that cedar sink program. That's that it was like sixteen almost seventeen dollars, sixteen dollars in some some sense. And um, that includes paying for the cost of the synchronization program. You're still ahead. And that feed cost, it's a typical thing. It's an opportunity cost. It's a it's a cost that farmers don't see. Uh, that days on feed. So, uh, but when you do the math, it, it's, it's better to be more aggressive with the heifers, especially, especially with sex semen. Excellent. Um, one comment that you made that, that, that really hits home is, is controlled research, right? And, and maybe um, after we, we talk a little bit more about uh, beef semen uh, applications and, and technologies, we can go back to that because I think that's uh, so uh, a very common error in the industry is, is uh, you know, data mining, if you will, will look at the data and uh, it's skewed by how we manage the herd, culling and so forth. So 
Um, I think that, you know it's a really important point that uh, you know we do a lot of uh, controlled trials and, and they can they can happen on commercial farms. They take a lot of oversight and, and uh, compliance. Um, but yeah, those are the things that you know you're doing, we're doing, other groups to to really answer the question and not just say cause and effect. So so thanks for that comment. I think that's great. Yeah, and I think that's great, Mark. I've seen some of your talks that you've done on that, looking at, you know, it's kind of use and abuse of data, actually. And and I commend people for wanting to look at data. But I'll tell you what farmers have to get away from is proving that something works in their herd necessarily because they're not going to normally do a randomized controlled trial, right? So if you really want to answer the question, that's what you have to do. So Great, great. So uh, uh, further thoughts then on the uh some of the research uh, you're doing and the pl- or practical application of, of the beef semen uh, programs. Yeah. So uh, let me cover one other topic with sex semen. We did a, a, a study in lactating dairy cows. There, there were a couple studies that came out and they weren't, um, it weren't very well randomized controlled trials. They're published in the, in the scientific literature. They just looked at these, these farms had jer- lactating Jersey cows And they had a heat detection system. So they knew when they came into heat and they knew when they were inseminated relative to the onset of estrus. Okay. Those are the two things that they knew. So there were no treatments applied. It was just observational. And both studies concluded that based on the timing, it looked like you have to breed a little bit later with sex semen for normal fertility. Okay. So that idea has been around. It's penetrated out. You hear people talking about this. So we got to breed them a little bit later with, with sex semen. Now, here's what I'll say. That may be true in an estrus situation. And the reason is this whole liver metabolism thing. I don't want to get into the hypothesis of Wilt Banks idea. So high producing dairy cows uh, are, have compromised fertility because they have such high feed intake and that high feed intake causes an increase in liver blood flow and the liver breaks down estradiol and progesterone. And so what happens in a high producing dairy cow is at the end of the cycle, the corpus luteum regresses, but because the liver is metabolizing the estradiol from that up, that follicle that's growing up, it takes longer for that cow to come into estrus. And so what we've done is we've turned a 21-day, a cow with an average cycle length of 21 days, it's about 22.5 days now. And that increase in the cycle is at the end, after luteal regression, until the cow ovulates. And so in high-producing dairy cows, yeah, it might look like you need to breed them a little bit later. What we decided to do was to look at this within a uh, situation where it was more controlled. So we did it within a timed insemination program. And so it was a double opsync program, first lactation Holsteins, three different farms. Um, and what we did is, is a little bit odd. We changed when we gave the last GNRH treatment because the breeders wouldn't come out to farms. The, the right way to do that trial is to, to either breed at the right time or, or delay breeding, right? But that was a non-stider on these large dairies. It's the inseminator We're simply wouldn't come back. Yeah. Exactly. They're just going to come at one time. And so what we did is we, we um, normally what we do in a double opsync program, that last GnRH treatment is given in the afternoon and then you breathe the next morning. And that gives you a 16 hour interval from induction of ovulation with GnRH to the time day I, which is about perfect because they're going to ovulate about 24 to 32 hours later. So that's our control treatment. What we did is we moved that last GnRH from the afternoon to the morning. 
So we're inducing ovulation a little bit earlier, and now the interval from induction of ovulation to AI is about 24 hours. So we're actually putting semen in about the time they're going to ovulate. And that mod it's pretty simple. That modification actually decreased uh, fertility. Uh, so what I've been telling people, if, if you're going to use sex semen and first lactation Holstein on a timed AI program, uh, you need to use the standard timings that we've talked about for a long time. Give that last generation in the afternoon, breed the cows the next morning. That's about a 16-hour interval between the last generation time insemination. And um, the meeting that my PhD student and I were at, um, Dr. Kearns from Iowa State, was was there he's a sperm physiologist and gave some really interesting talks and we had some interesting discussions i think with sex semen the mistake that you can make with sex semen is breeding too early you know and if you breed too, if you put semen into the reproductive tract too early i think those sperm just run out of run out of energy uh and lose motility and all kinds of things uh, if that interval from when you put the semen into the reproductive tract to when they ovulate so you want to get the timing of insemination right with sex semen, and that would be with the standard protocol. Okay. Did you look at other intervals, Paul? We didn't look at other intervals, and I'll tell you the one thing, any anybody who works with science listening to this, we changed more than one thing in that trial. So it wasn't just the timing of insemination relative to ovulation. We actually induced ovulation a little earlier, so probably ovulated a little smaller follicle, may have had a little smaller CL. At any rate, the net decrease in conception rate by our modification was uh, seven percentage points negative. So don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, we want to keep want to keep with the standard standard timing. And then um, I'll quickly describe what we're doing with this. Uh, this is a Jersey herd that we're working with, about a 2,000 cow Jersey herd here in Wisconsin. We set the cows up to be inseminated to first breeding uh, with the double off-sync protocol. Or we have, a, we have a protocol that we use to bring the cows into estrus. It's essentially two treatments of prostaglandin 14 days apart. Okay, So what we can do is we can compare pregnancies per AI to a timed insemination at about the same day in milk as to um, cows that are essentially brought brought into an estrus at that time. So we're not confounded by uh, by days in milk when when they're inseminated. And so we had done this before with those very same protocols with conventional semen. This was a herd actually in in Portugal, herd of Holsteins, and uh, there was about a ten percentage point advantage for double ovsync compared to estrus. That's why we call these a fertility program. We did a lot of work in that study, so we 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 cleaned the data up to make sure that only synchronized cows were included, and only cows in the estrus group that were inseminated in a low progesterone environment, and then subsequently had high progesterone to make sure that they ovulated. When we cleaned that up, that ten percentage point advantage still existed for the double offsync groups. So. What we concluded is that whatever double obstinc is doing to these cows, it is intrinsically improving their fertility. Okay. So even a cow that was in correct uh, hormonal physiological state from a natural estrus, if you will, uh, had lower yep. fertility than, uh, yep, than a synchronized cow. <clears throat> 
Yep. And so that's that's why I've been calling programs like Double Ops Sync um, fertility programs because they do actually. And 10 percentage points in in conception rate is quite a bit actually. Uh, it's not a small amount. And so um, now the other thing about Double Ops Sync is you breed 100 percent of the cows. With the Esther's program, and we had heat detection system and KMARS on them, so we were doing as good of a job as we could to catch them in heat. You only catch about 75% of them in heat. So you get killed not only on the pregnancies for ET, but on the service rate side, too, when you when you breed Esther's. So, Paul, not to, um, we'll, we'll still get to the, the beef scene at some point, but I think this, this brings a really good uh, discussion to, okay, how do we position these hormone-based programs, um, given some public consumer pressure on use of hormones and so forth. Because in this case, there's a, there's a benefit, okay? We could say, yes, we can use activity monitoring. We can, you know, use other heat detection methods and, quote, some people say get the same results, but this would uh, say that we, we can't. Yep. You've asked me the hard question. Okay. So the first thing I always say, if I had a hat on, I'd take it off right now and say, okay, I'm a scientist. That's, that's a bit of a it's a bit of a philosophical question, but I think we can deal with it. The first thing I say is from a biological standpoint, these the treatments we use in these programs, generation prostaglandin, do not get into meat. They're short acting. They don't get into milk. They're approved for the use that we use them for. I mean, there's no reason that biologically they're a problem, okay? The one thing you can say is that, yeah, you're repeatedly um, giving subcutaneous treatments with a needle, right? So maybe maybe that's an issue. Some farms are getting over that because um, one of the farms we have here in Wisconsin, they've actually put uh, two people on, on the rotary parlor, or on the on the rotary, and they're using those pulse guns. And the I don't know if you've seen those, Mark. Yes. Needleless technology. They do it because, because they want to stop like leukosis, which is transmitted by reusing needles. Um, but also... Um, I think it's less hard on the cows. They did an interesting thing. They put pedometers on the on the workers that were responsible for going out to the pens to find these cows. I mean, this is like a five thousand cow dairy. They were walking miles to try to try to do this. And then, as you know, Mark, the problem with the programs, you got to give the right stuff to the right cows on the right day. And if you can't do that, you compromise the results. When you work through pens on a farm. If you get to the end and you've got cows that were on your list that you can't find, what do you do? Yeah, you're not going to go far. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps it's the best thing in terms of disrupting all the cows to not go find them. Exactly. But here's, here's the kicker. All cows go through the parlor. All cows go through the parlor. So I think that the uh, compliance is much better. It's a beautiful system, and I think it's, I think it's a way forward with regard to the problem of the needles. Okay. Now let's get back to, to the programs and the perception of the programs. There's no doubt that the programs work. There's no doubt that they improve profitability for farmers. I don't think what we talk about enough, Mark, is the benefit to the cow herself. And there's a couple things that I can speak to with regard to these programs. High producing dairy cows, another interest of mine is, is twinning, double ovulations and twinning. So twinning is going up in the dairy cow population. It's because of this liver metabolism with increasing milk production. So we're changing the endocrine milieu around the time the follicles are selected and we're selecting two follicles. And we've done some interesting work where if we force cows into a low progesterone environment when we start an off-sync program, we increase uh, double ovulation rate from 
10% to over 30%. So, so it's probably, so if you put a cow on a double obsync program, you, you should theoretically decrease her risk of twinning. And as you know, Mark, twinning is bad for cows and bad for calves. I think cows that twin probably are culled at at least a 20 to 30% rate. And so it's good for cows uh, to put them on a protocol like this, especially if they're at risk for twinning. The other thing that I spoke of was the, um, the high fertility cycle. And so cows that get pregnant in a timely manner, okay, uh, if they get pregnant at the end of the voluntary waiting period, they, uh, they have less total days in milk. They do not spend too much time in late lactation where they gain a lot of excess body condition score. They calve at a lower body condition score, which means that they don't lose as much body condition, which means that they have much better fertility the next time around. We looked at, um, in, a, in a study, personally's done one of these studies. We have one. There's more and more of these studies that are coming out. Cows that, we split cows into whether they maintained uh or lost or gained body condition just in the first 21 days post-calving. Cows, here's, here's a misconception. Not all cows lose body condition, okay? Some cows maintain. In other words, they don't change in that 21-day period. And some cows actually gain. Cows that maintain or gain have much higher fertility than cows that lose. If you set up cows to calve when they're too fat and they lose body condition, even on a double obsync protocol, it was like, a, a, you've seen those data, Mark. It was 25%, I think, for the cows that lost. It was 50% for the cows that gained and probably in the 40% for the cows that maintained. So this, in, so cow, and here, let's just bring this in. You're, you're a veterinarian. So what happens to cows that lose condition, Right. They get metabolic disasters, <laughs> metabolic diseases. They have DAs. They have all. They're a train wreck. Okay. So I think what I would like people to start thinking about and focusing on is the benefits to the lactating dairy cow of these programs that very successfully get them pregnant in a timely manner. I think there's animal welfare issues, the twinning issue, and the um, and the meta avoiding those metabolic disasters. So I guess that's. One of the ways that I'm trying to discuss that question, Mark, I probably get that question as much as any. And and the other thing I'll add to this, when I started in my position probably 25 years ago now, farmers used to look at me and, and, and say, just give me a way to get my cows pregnant. I mean, I got to get my cows pregnant. I mean, farmers knew intuitively, you have to get your cows pregnant in order to make money in the dairy industry. Now we have a safe an effective and FDA approved way of getting cows pregnant. And it's like that we, we can't do that now. That's not right. There's some problem with this, right? So it's, it's, it's come full circle. And uh, a lot of people, uh, including my former student, Julio, who's at, at Cornell, who you've worked with, are, are really working on these technologies, these automated activity monitoring systems. I think those are beautiful systems. And um, I think the, the rumination, when that came with them, I, I think those systems are here to stay. We're seeing lots of farms in Wisconsin adopt those systems. But I'll tell you, Mark, people that try to stop doing a double opposite program for first breeding come to me and say, wow, I just, what do I do to get my fertility better to estrus? It's like, come on, we spent 20 years figuring this out. We know what the problem is. We know we can fix it. And so many of these farms that have these systems, and I think, Mark, the most powerful way 
to get cows pregnant quickly to just to, if your goal is to get a high 21 day preg rate if that's your goal coming off a fertility program for first breeding you get a hundred percent service rate at the end of the voluntary waiting period and you'll get half of your cows pregnant okay then use your system to catch those cows coming back into heat that is your earliest non-pregnancy diagnosis you can breed those cows back they're going to have lower fertility but you're going to get that lower conception rate earlier and then when they get to the preg check the open cows get get resynchronized it's a and those farms that do that are probably 50 percent timed insemination breedings and about 50 percent estrus breedings it's what so another thing i've been focused on mark is combining these technologies what is the best way we can put all these things together to get the highest 21 day pregnancy rate and i think for a while i saw people saying well i bought a heat detection system i don't want to synchronize cows well you're not going to that's fine okay i'm just going to tell you you're not going to have as high of a pregnancy rate as if you put those two technologies together well that's great to hear paul because really that's what we've been focusing on is, is combining the, those technologies and then uh to maximize the uh the fertility cycle um i think what's also interesting is you bring up you know the in, injections or injection technology i know there, there are some groups uh, you mentioned uh, julio giordano and others, you know, working with other methods of uh, administering hormones, okay? You know, if that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, intravaginal or, or some automated devices that can potentially um, manage an entire sync program with, with one application of some device. So uh, I think it's really cool to think of, uh, you know, future uh, opportunities in, in those areas. Well, Again, back to I think- the semen. Beef semen. So what we what we did in this Jersey herd that we're working with, two thousand cow Jersey herd, we've got cows set up for first breeding on those protocols I described before. It's either a double offsync protocol or it's that protocol we use to bring the cows into estrus at the same day in milk. There, so here's the kicker: the farm determines the mating. Okay, I would love to do a study where I could randomize cows to beef versus sex semen because people ask that question. Nobody's going to let me do that. Okay. Um, because people want to breed their worst cows with beef semen and, and their best cows with sex semen. So the farm determined the mating. So with any semen type, we have cows that are, uh, are bred with sex semen to estrus or double offsync and beef semen with estrus or double offsync. And again, in both cases, double offsync is about seven, eight percentage points higher in pregnancies per AI compared uh, with estrus. And then the other thing that I would say, I hear, I've heard people, and I don't, know, I don't know if you've heard this, I'd be interested to hear what you think, Mark. Some people complain about the fertility of beef semen. We did not find that to be the case. I mean, coming off a double offsync program and the cows mated to beef semen are more, more older cows at, at higher services. We were hitting like 55% pregnancies per ET with beef semen. I think the perception that beef semen is less fertile uh, or has fertility problems may be a hangover from when we saw this real shift about five years ago in the industry when people were scrambling to get beef semen. They, any any black sire, I'll take it, right? And so I think they were cleaning out tanks and they had all kinds of garbage semen that was out there. The AI companies have really stepped up their game and they're really doing a nice job with quality control and getting really good sires and getting that beef semen. So I don't, I don't think there's any problem with, with beef semen compared to uh, Holstein, conventional Holsteins. Okay. 
And yeah, we would agree with that, uh, Paul, from you know the data that that we have internally. So, excellent, excellent. Um, so, a lot of what you've discussed here, um, and I really like your synopsis of looking back, you know, uh, years ago, and not too many years ago, where you know your 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 average or maybe a um, goal of pregnancy rate was uh, you know above sixteen or seventeen or that twenty, and and you know, where that is today. And I remember in my early career, you know, working with some of those herds, trying to get them to 20. And now, you know, a herd of today, if you're at 20, you're, you're, you need to really uh, do, do something to step it up real quick. Um, but through all this, what about the, the cow of today versus the cow even five years ago? Um, this discussion has come up quite a bit within our group as we uh, look at uh, really metabolic disease, ketosis, and, and subclinical ketosis for that matter, and some of the uh, cut points for subclinical versus clinical. You know, we, we have cows now that genetically are, are, are different, higher producing cows, and maybe they can manage through some of uh, these uh, BHB levels. How do you think that also equates somewhat to to the change in in the fertility cycle of the the cow of today, if you will? Yeah, we've we've really had two kind of concurrent, simultaneous revolutions in dairy cattle. One is the genomic revolution, okay? And there's no doubt that the genomics, that whole technology, has just been a game changer as far as as uh, as the cow is concerned. I mean. We can now select for uh, we have kind of like an a la carte. You know, I want to I want a Holstein cow that does this and this and this and this, and we can just select for that, right? And so we're in the early stages of that. Uh, we've also had a reproduction revolution with the high fertility cycle with fertility programs, and we're just seeing these sky high twenty uh, one day pregnancy rates. It's to the point, Mark, when I teach class on campus. I, I kind of get excited and rant and rave. You know, we we see herds with 30, 35, 40% prey rates, and these kids are going, meh, you know? So they don't realize how bad it was. They haven't been alive. They haven't been alive long enough. So so I, I try to go back to that and give them a little bit of, of that perspective. So has the cow changed? Now, I'm going to make a comment that maybe some geneticists don't like. Milo and I published a paper, a review paper, where the, 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 it's the Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding has been doing a nice job keeping track of, of data now. And so if you look at the trend for days open, days open from 1955 to 2000 was just going up. Okay. And of course, we want lower days open. Lower days open is better fertility. So fertility is getting worse. And at the same time, the, uh, the phenotypic uh, trend for days open is coming down. So we're selecting for other things, right? During those those years, we're selecting for more milk production, more components. We're not selecting for fertility. In 2000, that days open graph just took a trend back down. It's an amazing graph. So what's happened with the phenotypic trend for days open is it's flattened. Okay, so the geneticists have stopped the the massive decline, but it the increase or the decrease in days open can't really be explained in large part by an improvement in genetics. I'm not saying genetics isn't important. I'm not saying we're not going to be able to select for fertility. We should be doing those things. What really changed in the last five to seven years was a dramatic increase in the phenotypic value for cow conception rate. It's just gone through the roof. And it's because of fertility programs. It's because of the high fertility cycle that we've seen that dramatic increase. 
So again, I'm not trying to say that the cow's not different. I think that they are. Another thing that I would like to bring into this discussion, Mark, when reproduction got really good, I realized early on that farmers were going to figure out that they can set their herd turnover rate. Herd turnover rate was basically determined by available replacements. Okay. And now that you can produce more replacements than you need, it used to be set at about, you know, we had a 40, 42% herd turnover rate in Wisconsin for many, many, many years. And that I think was just the ability at a 14% preg rate produce that many heifers to replace. And that pretty much maintained herd sizes. Well, now that we've got all the heifers we need and you can determine how many you're going to breed with sex semen, I can say, wow, maybe I don't want a 42% herd turnover rate. Maybe I can get that lower. And so I think that we are getting that lower. I'm seeing herds and this is a bit, you know, I mean, we can have a discussion about this. There's people who are arguing that, no, we shouldn't have a 30% herd turnover rate because you want more replacements to make those calling decisions. But yet, when you do achieve a 30% turnover rate, you have a more mature herd that's closer to their mature equivalent. I mean, I always tell my students, mature equivalent as a number doesn't mean anything to me if your average lactation length is 2.5. They're not hitting their mature equivalent. So who cares what that number is, right? But if you can get that herd turnover rate down, graduate these cows into higher lactations, you're going to have a much higher producing herd on average. And so my point with this, Mark, to come full circle here is that I think the groups of animals that we have coming through are different because now we, we're, we're using sex semen to produce these heifer calves and we're doing culling of these heifers. The sick heifers aren't even getting cold or I mean, aren't even making it. They are getting cold. And so I think that it, and when I was a kid, you know, based on we basically starved our calves. I mean, they got a quarter class from whether they needed it or not. Now we're talking what two gallons. I mean, you're, you're trying to you stuff these baby calves full of colostrum, high quality proteins. We can get the heifers to grow. And so I think we're looking at a very different animal coming through our systems now. And yeah, maybe, you know, we, I don't think we even really know the implications of what that has for fertility on those animals, but I think it's gotta be positive. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And certainly we've seen that in, in, uh, over the uh, short term of, you know, working with some herds nutritionally and and making benefit or improvements, and then the real improvement starts to come with with reproduction and with better heifers. Really, you know, you get you get to a certain point, and then the the, the next advances really come repro and and uh, and replacements. Yeah, it's it's been you know it's been such a I would say a rewarding and exciting time to be involved with, with reproduction. I, I just think before OBSYNC, you know, a person who worked in reproduction said, watch for heat better. I mean, that's pretty much the only thing we had to, had to offer. Use some prostaglandin, right? Use prostaglandin, watch for heat. And now we've, we've developed these tools, including the uh, activity monitoring systems, including fertility programs, the concept of the high fertility cycle. We've just seen the fruits of 20 years of kind of this this innovation and the data that's come through and now you know we're seeing herds uh 30 40 percent preg rates 
um, the, 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 the decrease in the herd turnover rates. We've got healthy. I think we have healthier herds, Mark. I think we have healthier cows. Um, I think it's just it's just been a very exciting time to be involved with reproduction and see what's happened to these uh, to the dairy industry and the herds. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Oh, I, would, I would certainly agree. Um, I some great, great discussion today. Um, well, Paul, as we uh, wrap up here uh, this morning, I'd really like to thank you, but uh, uh, DCRC, um, for those of you who are less familiar, Dairy Cattle Reproductive Council meeting is coming up uh, really uh, less than a month. And uh, any, any little uh, promotions you can give there or tidbits of, of what folks to expect. For those who haven't attended that meeting, I'll say I think early bird uh, registration is still on. But uh, one thing that's always really uh, enticed me about that meeting, it's a great mix of the dairy producers, uh, industry folks, veterinarians, and uh, university researchers and so forth. And, and it's, I think, really unique. A lot of other meetings are more focused to one group or another. And it's a really nice mix of, of uh, folks there. So uh, any comments as we wrap up for, for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that plug. I was involved in the leadership of Dairy Cattle Reproduction Council. I was, I was there at the first meeting when that was formed, like uh, 14 years ago now. Two of my former uh, grad students were uh, served as president in the organization, Julio being one of them and Glaucio being the other. And it's, it is a great meeting and it is, it is a good mix. I mean, a dairy farmer can go and get, a, get something out of it. A veterinarian can go and get something out of it. There's really a nice mix of stuff being presented there. Breakouts, plenary sessions. Um, I believe Jack Britt is going to be there. I, I can't, I didn't memorize the program. I'm giving a talk on the uh, optimizing use of sex semen. So I'll be going through, it's in a breakout. I'll be giving that talk twice. Um, and so it, it'll go through all the data that we have that I described with with uh, use of sex semen, how to optimize that. And um, it's in Madison, Wisconsin this year. So it's right in my backyard. I get to sleep in my own bed at night, you know, rather than traveling. So that's good, but it's a good location. I, I we usually get a lot of good uh, good walk-ins and drive-ins because we just have so many farmers and veterinarians right here in proximity to it. So looking forward to that meeting. So thanks for bringing that up. Appreciate it. Great. And Paul, you mentioned the, uh, you know, different management uh, strategies for, for giving injections and so forth. I know Don Niles is also on the program and certainly we'll be speaking about, uh, I would imagine both the needless technology and then, uh, you know, alternative management strategies for, for, um, you know, giving injections, if you will, and other programs. So great. Yeah. So we'll look forward uh, for those who, who can attend. I also believe is a virtual option. So, yep. They poll actually, they'll take the, they'll take the top rated talks and invite each speaker to do a webinar over the next, however many months. And so those are available on the web too. I encourage people to become members. It's a, it's a great, great organization. 
Great, agreed. Well, Paul, I really appreciate your your, your time today. Uh, some great discussions. We could we could take any one of these and continue and uh, down a different avenue. But I think uh, you've given the audience here a lot to think about, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to having you back again. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Have a great day.